Hello, and Happy New Year to everyone listening. I posted a poll on Twitter asking what kind of philosophy people would like to see covered in the show, and Chinese philosophy just barely won in a pretty even race. If you want to suggest someone I should cover on the podcast, pop on Twitter and look up Porches Liberty. So without any more stalling, today I'll be covering Mozi, a philosopher from ancient China who challenged much of the traditional mores of Chinese society at the time. Though Mozi was writing over 2,000 years ago, his ideas of how society ought to be are still relevant today. But for starters, very little can be stated with any real certainty about the life of Mozi. Scholars agree he was born in the state of Lu, what's known as the Shidong province in China, at some time around 470 BC and died at some time around 391 BC. But besides these very basic, undisputed details, although his life was recorded and discussed by various followers and critics, the precise details of his life are largely unknown to us. But I can't just say he was born and then died and then call it a day, so I'm going to do my best to describe the kind of lad Mozi was according to the stories told about him. Not a perfect method, but the best one we have. Mozi was born in a lower class family, or at the very least, a family that had fallen from a position of prestige and power. There was a wide variance of stories about Mozi, but all portray him as kind of a commoner not a man of wealth or power. Some even theorize that Mozi was possibly some sort of laborer or convict due to his name. Mo translates roughly to ink, and scholars have extrapolated that this name might have referred to his dark skin from laboring out in the sun all day, or was possibly a reference to a tattoo or a branding mark, punishments reserved for criminals. Stories about Mozi often comment about his lower status, with him having no qualms about hard manual labor, unlike other philosophical types who were very shy of dirty work. Mozu was also renowned as a carpenter and later even a specialist in defensive warfare, building and designing impressive fortifications. Another hint at Mozu's common status is that his analogies and metaphors often center around trades that ordinary people and artisans would perform. But despite his status, through hard work, Mozu served as a minister for a short while. Following his stint as a minister for the government, he established an organization of followers to articulate and spread his message. His followers compiled this philosophy into a book named after him, simply entitled Mozu. When we read Mozu, we are in fact reading a book compiled by multiple people at different times and refined over time. But for simplicity's sake, we'll just call him Mozu. We won't say it's a collective author. This is a very common occurrence in classical Chinese philosophy. For example, Confucius's Analects were attributed to Confucius, but compiled by his students and subsequent followers. But regardless, Mozu is the face and personality of this movement now called Moism. To understand what kind of philosophy Moism was, we need to know a bit more about the historical context. Mozi was born and lived through a period of Chinese history known as the Warring States period, that began when the Zhou dynasty's weakening started. He had to rely on armies supplied from allied states. The empire comprised a number of states, which were seven key ones, vying for independence and dominion over others, leading to a multitude of wars from 535 BC to 286 BC. Warfare also shifted dramatically in this time, with aristocrats and chariots no longer the norm, but being replaced by masses of infantry drawn from the peasantry. With aristocrats no longer as frontline fighters essential to protecting the state, their influence waned, and one-person despotism became more and more common. The continuous war between rulers attempting the Herculean task of unifying China under their leadership led to destruction, famine, and death, with as ever the poorest bearing the brunt of the misery, whilst the nobility remained unaffected in their opulent palaces. With all this chaos, people began to think of how they could fix this mess and restore some sort of order. New schools of thought sprung up to diagnose and cure the disease of chaos before it swallowed the country whole. 
scholars roamed the country attempting to convince rulers to follow their philosophies and policies. Classical Chinese philosophy tends to stray from standalone questions like logic, favoring more grounded approach, focusing on relations between individuals, community, and the state. In this way, it's an extremely practical kind of philosophy. Chinese philosophers talked about the Tao, or the Way, a natural structure of the world that can be uncovered and understood through reflection. Straying from the Way is the cause of all the chaos and disorder in the world. So all we have to do is stay in the Way, right? Well, yeah, but there's multiple ways to go, depending on who you ask. For example, legalists will tell you to create a strong state with rigid standardization. Taoists believe the Way cannot be understood in terms of language and instead must be found through effortless action, or as we might say, going with the flow. Judging by how well he understood their doctrines, it is possible at one point Mozart was part of the school known as Confucianism. Some stories say Mozart used to be a Confucian, while others make no mention of it. So as always at Mozart, we simply can't be certain. The Confucians were a major school, and their idea of order was based upon everyone understanding and performing one's role. Now, you don't get a choice in what your role in society is or what you do. We are all born into our roles and change them according to the Confucians will upset the order of things. The ideal society for Confucius was in which the ruler being a ruler, the minister being a minister, the father being a father, and the son being a son. Everything in its right place. Additionally, Confucians believed the best way to train a person to have good character was to follow examples set down by the ancient sage kings of the past. Confucius' Analect says, I transmit rather than innovate. I trust and love in the ancient ways. With this reverence for the past came a reverence for tradition, mainly through the practice of elaborate rituals. Confucius advised, if it is contrary to ritual, don't look at it. If it is contrary to ritual, don't listen to it. If it is contrary to ritual, don't utter it. If it is contrary to ritual, don't do it. Confucianism was based on maintaining order through tradition and a rigid hierarchy. Confucians often contrasted the righteous man with the petty man or commoner. They had very little faith in the average person when compared to those of high status. Mozart eventually found himself strongly opposed to Confucianism, with his rigidity and constant appeals to tradition. Normally, followers of various schools came from very privileged backgrounds, but not in Mozart's case. A man of lowborn status himself, Mozart welcomed artisans, soldiers, and farmers, something unheard of for a philosophical school. Mozart was an enigmatic scholar who seemingly inspired great loyalty amongst his followers. His followers lived an austere lifestyle, traveling around the war-torn lands attempting to bring some sort of order again. But most of his followers were not mere scholars. They were soldiers who helped defend against invaders. One account records Mozart walking for ten straight days to reach the state of Chu, in attempt to convince the Chu leader to abandon his siege of Song. At the Chu court, Mozart challenged the chief military strategist of Chu to simulate the war games. In each of the nine bouts they had, Mozart defeated the strategist with ease. When eventually threatened with death, he informed those of the court that his hundreds of followers were at Song defending the walls, and that they have already learned his methods, so killing would be completely useless. With little choice, the Save Chu was forced to back down their plans of evasion. Mozart saved the day. But what exactly did this wandering intellectual, soldier, strategist, and carpenter advocate for? Mozart organized his thought into ten doctrines entitled as follows. Are you ready? Inclusive care, condemning aggression, promoting the worthy, identifying upward, moderation in use, moderation in burial, heaven's intent, understanding ghosts, condemning music, condemning fatalism. Now, I won't be discussing all of them, so I'm really sorry if you want to hear about ghosts. Instead of going through each of the ten doctrines individually, which would be quite boring and not all of them are that relevant, I'll instead go through three big themes in Mozart's thought that are of particular interest to classical liberals. The importance of standards, the doctrine of inclusive caring or universal love, and the idea of how a good government ought to act. So starting off with standards. 
moral beliefs are important, but just as important as these beliefs is the foundation they're built upon. How do we establish a basis for what is morally right and wrong? Well, Confucians would answer traditional rituals, manners, and ceremonies. But most of his followers were not part of this elite and had little interest in this kind of high culture. Most would argue that conforming tradition is no real guarantee of moral behaviour. Using the example of an old country to the east, Mozart describes the barbaric customs of a kingdom in which the eldest son of a family is chopped up and eaten. This is apparently deemed to be advantageous to the younger brothers. He also explains that when one grandfather died in this kingdom, his wife was abandoned because, as they say, one cannot live with the wife of a ghost. Different cultures are different traditions. Suppose tradition is the only standard to which Confucians conform. In that case, people will merely practice what they've always done, no matter how vicious or cruel. Mozart believed that having reliable standards was the key to reforming society at large. He wrote that, Those in the world who perform tasks cannot do so without models and standards. There is no one to accomplish any task without models and standards. This is true of all fields, whether it's carpentry or rocket science. Mozart this wanted to replace tradition with objectivity. He was opposed to spiraling into moral relativism of just saying, this is my culture. So how do we know what is morally right? Some might argue we learn it from our parents or teachers or some form of role model like a political leader. Mozu rejects all of these, writing, Of these three, parents, teachers, and rulers, none is acceptable as a model for order. Individuals are fallible and partial, meaning they can often lead us down the wrong path, even if they think they're doing good. Mozu proposes that morality can be derived by reflecting on how heaven will act. Now, that might sound a little odd, but I'm going to ask you to bear with me. Heaven for Mozu represents an impersonal force that governs the world. This force, or God, is more reliable than any person or culture or historical standard. Heaven promotes acts impartially. It gives benefits without discrimination. Nature provides all with resources, sustenance, and shelter. Thus, like heaven, our morality ought to center around practicing equal and impartial care for all. For Mozart, the example of heaven is no different from the Weirite having a compass or the carpenter having a set square. It is a reliable moral standard unlike any other. For Mozart, the lack of reliable standards is the cause of much of the world's problems. He describes the people of antiquity constantly fighting over their differing views with no method of solving their disputes, no objectivity. Unlike other schools of Chinese thought, Mozart and his followers were deeply committed to the power of reason and rational argumentation. This can be felt throughout Mozart's writings, which differ from their contemporaries by not styling fancy prose, but instead focus on making their argumentation understandable and clear. In some ways, Mozart, more than any other Chinese thinker from the same time, comes close to a westernized approach to philosophy, one in which rational argument trumps appeals to emotion or tradition. Mozart focused on what made an argument good, and they distilled it down to three elements. It has to conform to the sages of the past, it has to conform to the eyes and ears of the people, or simply put, common sense, and it must produce beneficial effects. In other words, Mozart wanted decisions to be based on evidence, past endeavors, experience, and potential benefits. Sounds reasonable. This nicely sets us up for the next big theme of Mozart's philosophy his doctrine of inclusive caring, or universal love. Confucians often emphasize the dichotomies between different social roles and classes, with one often being the superior, one often being the inferior, so like a father and a son. But Mozart writes that there is no difference between the large states and the small states, all of which are heaven cities. Nor is there any difference among the young and the elderly, the noble and the ignoble, all of which are heaven subjects. So regardless of their role, Every person is entitled to a modicum of respect and dignity simply because they are human. This forms the core doctrine of Mozu's Esco theory. Mozu pinpoints the cause of disorder in the world to be humans' tendency to love themselves more than others. He writes that feudal lords only know to care for their own states, heads of houses only care for their own houses, 
individual people only care for themselves. If we only care for ourselves, we all act selfishly, and calamity ensues as we all get into conflict. Mozart argues that people should follow standards derived from heaven, inclusively caring for each other, and interactions benefiting one another. For Motsu, what heaven demands is that we all love one another and interact for mutual gain, repaying kindness with kindness. Appealing to people's self-interest, Motsu frames his doctrine of universal love as worthy not because it's morally right only, but it's also really beneficial. Excluding others from our moral concern helps us justify callousness, theft, and violence towards others. Motsu asks us to imagine what it would be like if people treated other states like their own. He explains that if this is the case, then who alone would deploy his state to attack another state? Won't it be for others as for oneself? Were people for other cities as for their city, then who alone would deploy his city to assault other cities? By thinking of others as an extension of ourselves, we see the wrongness and harming in exploiting them by appealing to a sort of golden rule found within Christianity, treating others as we wish to be treated. So what does universal love look like in practice, though? Some say this phrase gives off a bit of a communist or a hippie vibe. Mozart recommends rulers try and help their people practice universal love by setting a good example and rewarding virtuous people. His rationale is as follows. If officers and gentlemen of the world truly wish for its wealth and abhor its poverty, if they wish the world to be well-ordered and abhor disorder, they should take as right universal love in exchange of mutual benefit. Compare this to Adam Smith, who wrote, Man has almost constant occasion for the help of his brethren, and is vain from to expect from their benevolence only. He would be more likely to prevail if he can interest their self-love in his favour, and show them that it is to their advantage to do what he requires of them. Cooperating with others and showing mutual respect is the foundation of what we today call capitalism, and most of you knew this already before Adam Smith was even born. Universal love doesn't require us to sacrifice ourselves on an altar. In fact, it's the complete opposite. We adopt universal love because it benefits and promotes lots of things we like. Mozart writes, To love others does not exclude love for oneself. You yourself are among the love. Importantly, Mozart argues that universal love and impartiality ought to be guiding principles of those in power, mostly. Because to follow the way of universality is to govern by righteousness. To follow the way of discrimination is to govern by force. And this leads us to the big, bulky third theme. How should the government act? For Motsu, the ideal government is one that produces the benefit of all under heaven. Motsu is among the first ever consequentialists. Consequentialism is the idea that moral actions are justified by what happens. In the 19th century, Jeremy Bentham pioneered his consequentialist system known as utilitarianism, which operates under the principle of maximizing happiness for everyone. But unlike Bentham, Mozart bases consequentialism not just on happiness, but a range of goods like material wealth, a growing population, and good social order or harmony. All of Mozart's arguments are backed up by having beneficial consequences, with a special focus on the poor, made up the overwhelming majority of the population at the time. On the topic of how governments ought to act, Mozart gave three big pieces of advice that I think are important. To provide only what's necessary, to refrain from expansionary wars, and to exalt the worthy. So, First off, providing only what's necessary. Mozart takes for granted that resources are both limited and scarce. The sage kings of the past lived frugally, avoiding excessive luxury in their clothing and housing. But in contrast, Mozart condemns the rulers of his day for constantly having massive dishes of luxurious food they can't even finish and have to throw away and they start rotting, they have huge opulent homes, they wear garish clothes that cost a fortune. Mozart knew this lifestyle was not free. He wrote that those in power must impose heavy tax demands on ordinary people, 
cruelly season the people's materials for clothing and food to make elegant, embroidered, ornamented, colored, and beautiful clothes. Mozart hones in on two practices he particularly hates, music and funerals. Okay, this sounds bizarre at first, but at the time, Confucian practices dictated lavish and costly funerals, with bodies being buried wrapped in silk with all kinds of jewelry that could often impoverish entire families. Worse yet, tradition dictated observing certain extremely restricting practices. For example, if one's parent or eldest son died, they ought to mourn for three years, meaning no productive work. How's that going to work? Musta says if every single person observed this practice, then the world would come to a grinding halt and no one would produce anything. Chastising how detached Confucians are from reality, Mozart writes, The calm people have three worries. Those in hunger can't get food, those in coldness can't be clothed, and those belaboured cannot have rest. Mozart believed every penny of government money should go towards benefiting the people. The next big piece of advice Mozart gives is to avoid aggressive war. For Mozart, aggressive war is a great tragedy and a loss of life, also a colossal waste of precious resources. Mosu was befuddled by constant double standards trying to people's perception of what war was. If I steal your phone, that'd be pretty wrong. And if I stole your car and your phone, it'd be even worse. By the same token, if I killed one innocent person, that'd be wrong. If I killed ten innocent people, that'd be heinous. But Mosu observed when the state wages wars that destroy people's lives and prosperity by the thousands, rulers might even say that their war is righteous and virtuous all of a sudden. When a ruler punishes a murderer but then presumes to wage a war, claiming to be just, it's just hypocrisy. Mozart believed this is like someone seeing a speck of black and saying it's black, but then seeing a gargantuan blah blah black and then somehow saying, oh that's actually white. It doesn't make any sense. Mozart believes that leaders pursue wars because they wish for fame, conquest and reap the benefits of it all. Appealing to their selfish side, Mozart explains that the massive opportunity cost of war isn't really worth it. Armies cost a fortune to equip and feed. And even if you are lucky, a military campaign will last a substantial amount of time and take considerable resources. And even then, it might leave your state weak to other attacks. In short, as most observes, if you consider the resources wasted in military activity, this harms the foundations of the life of the people and the depletion of the resources of the world. Now, Mozart was no pacifist. He had no issue with defensive war, but he saw no reason for rulers to go out and seek conflict to enrich themselves, because it was not only morally wrong, but foolish. Lastly, in terms of how government ought to act, we have the idea of exalting the worthy. For the government to run smoothly, it has to hire people who are fit for the job. In Mozart's day, the issue was that most people gained their positions through their families, wealth, social status, familial ties, political favours, whatever. Good old-fashioned nepotism. This was pretty normal at the time, though, so... But for Mozart, the only relevant criteria for a person was that they had the proper skills and moral conduct for their business. Those who can perform the job well deserve whatever positions are on offer. This is what Mozart called exalting the worthy, and we might call today meritocracy. Who your parents are, how much money you have, has no bearing on one's ability to perform a job. Unlike his contemporaries, Mozart thought that the sage kings greatly honoured their principle of exalting the worthy, and that they employed the virtuous and capable, forming no cliques with their fathers and brothers, showing no partiality to the rich and noble, nor favouring those with handsome features. Overall, Government business for Mozart consists in promoting the best talent available to maintain a state which was no wasteful expenditure, either on lavish frivolities or aggressive wars. It seems like Mozart was an early advocate of some pretty good ideas. During the 3rd and 4th centuries, Moism hit its peak, with critics like my previously covered Mencius groaning that everyone's a Moist these days. 
But the tragedy of Mozart is that his philosophy of Moism never really achieved a position of cultural or intellectual dominance in the same manner as ideas like Confucianism, the one he hated. But despite Mencius' complaints, the challenge of Moism stimulated positive growth in other schools as they grapple with Mozart's unique positions. By 136 BC, Confucianism had become the dominant tradition and Mozart was quickly forgotten. The works of Mozart only survived by chance because it was copied in a collection of Taoist scriptures. Pretty lucky. Now, Mosey was by no means perfect. He took for granted monarchy as the best form of government, which is just a terrible idea, and some of his thought often kind of idolizes obeying one's superiors almost blindly. But for all the bad, there's an awful lot of good. Mozart was one of the first Chinese philosophers to argue through rational means and universality, not on culture and tradition. For this alone, he deserves a philosophical gold star. But on top of this, he articulated an ethical system based upon mutual respect and benefits we render unto each other, in a well-functioning society that grants every person dignity and respect they deserve. He also gets another gold star for being one of the first ever consequentialists in the world. His advice to our governments ought to act in ancient China sadly still applies today, somehow. Only provide what is necessary for the people, avoid foreign wars, and promote the best person for the job, not just the person with connections. This all sounds awfully simple, but even today people ignore simple logic and the wisdom of Mozart. Today, he's a very rarely discussed name, but I think classical liberals ought to admire Mozart for his philosophical originality, his undying commitment to proto-egalitarianism and meritocracy, and his disdain for pointless wars. Thanks a for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may listen to podcasts. Visit the website www.libertarianism.org to find more podcasts like this one. I hope to see you next time.